Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. An evil old house, the kind some people call haunted, is like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. Hill House had stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House. And whatever walked there, walked alone. For today's episode, I'm joined by a returning friend of the show, Micah, to chat about two film adaptations of horror icon Shirley Jackson's seminal gothic horror novel, The Haunting of Hill House. We'll discuss the original 1963 adaptation, retitled for the silver screen as The Haunting, as well as the 1999 adaptation of the same name. Two very different adaptations, though we'll see which one does the source material justice. Our first discussion will be with director Robert Wise and screenplay writer Nelson Giddings' 1963 adaptation The Haunting, in which Dr. Mark Way assembles a team who he thinks will help him to prove whether or not Hill House is haunted. And joining me to discuss all things Hill House is friend of the show, Micah. Welcome back. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be back. So last time you were here, we talked about another haunting film, I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, film that I would imagine, much like other kind of like haunted house or gothic horror stories, they draw lots of inspiration from The Haunting of Hill House, right? I mean, that's kind of like the seminal gothic horror uh, work, as it were. It really is, and it's it's interesting. And by the way, I do enjoy movies other than haunted house movies. This just happens to be the, <laughs> the second time we're talking about them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting, this... This book was written in 1959, and the movie, you know, just very shortly thereafter, four years later. And I, it, it is so many people call it like the best ghost story, you know, best haunted house movie, best haunted house book ever written. Stephen King called it the scariest book he's ever read. Um, Martin Scorsese and I think Steven Spielberg both said it was the movie was the scariest movie they ever seen. I don't know if I agree with that, but the point is. Um, a lot of people have cited this book and this film adaptation as source inspiration, a lot of very famous, very talented people. And it's just interesting to me that the most famous ghost story wasn't written until 1959. I mean, there are lots of other older stories and older authors from the late 19th century and, and early 20th century, but this this one really stands out in Shirley Jackson, I mean, rightfully so, is is just kind of credited as the uh, the mother of that genre really absolutely yeah and it i think that's a great point in that this is like the first work and maybe it's because it was adapted so shortly after uh it was re- the novel was released in that it was adapted um and then of course we had probably an influx at that point i would assume of like haunted house horror movies that saw that framework laid out and then they're like hey let's kind of try to capitalize on this new almost uh upbringing of that subgenre and Again, being adapted so shortly after the release, I would assume it's kind of like the case it is now, where when we see adaptations of novels for mainstream audiences, they might say, hey, I, this sounds interesting. Maybe I should go back and read that book. And it kind of, it can give underappreciated novels time that they're released, like a second wind almost. Yeah. Before we kind of like dive into the film itself, I'm curious, what are some of the kind of characteristics of gothic horror that make that sort of a standout subgenre for you? Because you don't only enjoy gothic horror and haunting films, but you're a fan of them. I am. Well, I, I, I really enjoy movies that play on the, 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 in the gray area between reality and fiction. 
and a lot of gothic horror, especially the best kinds of gothic horror, really blend that well. And this was a time, you know, especially the, the ones set in, either written in or even written later, but set in the early 1900s. And you have, a, you have a period of time where science was just becoming a thing. And you had a lot of people, you know, pseudoscientists, and in terms of what we would consider modern science, I think, trying to explain the supernatural. And you also had, you know, the kind of the birth of modern psychology and a lot of, uh, and, and psychiatry and a lot of um, really terrible things that were done to people and, and, and terrible approaches at that science. But it was the beginning of, of trying to understand the mind and, and what the mind is capable of and the tricks it can play on you. And I think this, this novel certainly and this film are all about that uh, and, and really what is in uh, Nell's head and what is really happening. Um, and can we, can we find a line between them? And does it really matter if we can find a line between them? Yeah, I think that that is the quality that really stands out to me the most, right? I mean, you have character-driven all sorts of different types of horror stories, and yet this is really, and especially The Haunting, it's more about trying to figure out whether or not it is in the person's mind, is it actually a supernatural, like a overt supernatural event? But then in the end, does it really matter if you get a definitive answer or not, right? Because either way, the director or the writer is evoking the sense of like the true essence of a horror story, right? It's somebody that they're, there's always like the person that's doubting the supernatural, like you said, there's science is just coming about at this time. But then we also kind of have these heavily spooky atmospheres, right? Because with this film, especially The Haunting, there aren't a lot of kind of like big in your moment scares in the film or what we would consider like traditional scares. And yet, I again, I don't know if I would agree either with people saying this is the scariest movie that's ever been made or something like that. But I think it is a very affecting movie and it is very affecting. Like this was the first time I'd ever seen the movie and I even found some moments of it very intense or just very unsettling in a way that I don't necessarily attribute to a lot of movies from this era. I read, uh, I don't remember if I, it was a YouTube clip or a, a review or something I read about this one. I think it might've been one of the contemporary reviews, but they said something, I, I wish I, I read, I'd written down the exact quote, but they said something interesting like this, it's not a horror film, but it's a terror film. And I thought that was a really interesting way to think about, you know, we nowadays, we just lump so many things into this word horror. And so, I mean, you and your podcast, there's a lot of different things that fall into that category. Um, but this really, and I thought that was an interesting way to think about it and that this is not really a horror film, but it's a terror film. Um, it's a film about being frightened. Um, and, and like we said, I mean, does it really matter so much where the fear is coming from? The fear is real and she makes you feel it, right? Yeah, and I think that that is what, again, it really makes this a fantastic character-driven film in that it's getting to the essence of who these characters are and why they are so fearful, right? It's not that, okay, there's something jumping out from the shadows that's scaring them. It's really getting to the root of, especially Nell, who's the protagonist, it's really kind of deconstructing who she is and we're not given that much to work with on early on we kind of just have the the bare bones outlines of who she is and yet the further we progress and the further things become more and more supernatural it makes you understand why she's feeling fearful whether or not that stems from hey i'm in this creepy house or really it's just it's been building it's something that is not kind of a spur of the moment thing it not only feels 
natural and kind of organic, but it feels like it's inevitable before she even steps foot in the house, right? Right, and that's what makes it so compelling is it's it's not really so much, and especially if you read the book, the, you know, the, the week, I don't even know what the time period is in the film. In the book, it takes place over seven or eight days, they're supposedly in the house. Um, but that is not the interesting part of the book, right? It's 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 the dialogue inside of the characters' heads and the backstory and, and all these, these things that build up to it. And that's what's so great. I know we're not gonna talk about it today, really, but that's what's so great. I thought about the the recent adaptation of this on Netflix um, and taking the time to do this over the course of a miniseries instead of just one film, I thought worked so, so, so well. We can talk about that a different night, but I, I, I love that the, the recent adaptation, which is a very loose adaptation, but but definitely a, a different take and a wonderful take. Something that really stood out to me about this movie is how before we even set foot in the house itself, it's very unsettling. Again, like I use that word to describe this movie in that it's very powerful, not only just because obviously you have this majestic kind of property. It starts with the exterior shot of Hill House itself, and it's this very grandiose and towering structure but just the way it's presented, right? You don't even see the detail of the house. You just see this black outline of a building. And then slowly, as we start getting that intro monologue where they talk about Hill House stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more, it very slowly comes into frame more, more detail. You get to start to see all the different, um, it's just lighted. You get to see the details and things like that. And it's almost as if the house itself is coming out of the shadows. And I find that in showing it as such a terrifying image when it's not has no detail and it's completely blacked out in the shadows, and then it slowly comes into frame, you're like, oh, okay, it's just a house. But then we kind of go into this uh, brief uh, exposition dump about the fact that like Crane, who was the homeowner, had two wives die, then the caretaker died. And before we even step foot in the house and we even are introduced to our characters, this is a very kind of ominous home. This is a place that exudes death, whether or not you've stepped foot on the property or not. And I find that for me, maybe it's an oversimplification, but that's really a strength of, I think, gothic horror films, right? A majority of the time, horror movies, I feel they start out, we either get a really gruesome death up front, or we're kind of just being given exposition, and then we get to where we need to get. Whereas with this, from the opening moments, like it's very unsettling again, and it's that combination of kind of the cinematography the presentation of the home, but also like the score, I think, too. I agree, and I, I think that uh, that was very intentional. I mean, the, the lighting is one of the best things about this film, the lighting and cinematography, which we can talk more about. It's so good. And remember, I mean, this was 1963. This movie did not have to be black and white. Robert Weiss uh, wanted it to be black and white. And in fact, he put it in the contract that it had to always be shown black and white. Uh, this was, he did this right after he finished West Side Story and right before he did Sound of Music. So this was the middle of the Technicolor era. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he very intentionally wanted this to be done in black and white. Um, there's also a really interesting story about the camera that he used in the film, the film lens. I'm not a you know, camera expert, but I know that he had uh, some kind of new model or, or a unique kind of film lens that had a lot of distortion around the edges. And in fact, it was so bad that the the manufacturer made him sign a waiver acknowledging this distortion in the lens. And he's like, no, I know it's there and I want it. And he used that for a lot of the really intense kind of psychological moments. You see 
that kind of fishbowl-ish with some out-of-focus distortion around the edges. And that was something he knew would happen and he put it in there specifically exactly to make you feel, like you said, to make you feel uneasy visually. And that, and, and so many of the, the shots, these you know strange, these long panning shots followed by, like the one right at the beginning of the film, right? Where you're hearing the backstory and the woman falls down the stairs and just her face is upside down right in front of you. Everything about that image is very off kilter and you don't know which way is up and you don't know if the camera is sideways. It's a very kind of disjointed image that gets thrown at you right at the beginning. And it gives you that uneasy feeling right from the from the start. To your point about it being not only in black and white, but also like the distinct decision to use a camera that I don't know if the manufacturer was even all that happy with the image that it produced, but it's such a particular film in the fact that he was very aware of the specific way that he wanted to shoot this. And like you said, it had to be black and white because he, that's what he envisioned. And that is really at the core of not only just the look of the film, but I don't know this film necessarily works in color. And right. To your point, you said it falls in between West Side Story and um, was it The Sound of Music? Yeah. But the Technicolor error, like this film, it gets so much from obviously the shadows, but it is really just the entire world itself. The way that they're able to portray hallways and the way that they're able to make the house itself, it's just a normal house. And yet it seems very supernatural on the inside because of the way that they use those uh, anamorphic lenses, wide angle lenses, and they make the hallways seem as if they extend forever almost, as if you could really get lost in this house, as if it is a supernatural entity. And of course, uh, we find out that there are some supernatural entities there, but I think it's a testament to the world building and also just the use of space. Because like you said, in that example where the um, it was either Miss Crane one or two, he had so many wives, I forget, but where she falls down the stairs, and we see her perspective in one moment of it, where we just see the camera rotating and rotating and rotating, and you almost become lost in the shot yourself. And I feel like that's just such a fantastic way, not only to put you into the shoes of a character, but also just, and then the camera falls almost to the side and we see her lying there. I mean, it's such a engaging shot that I almost wasn't expecting it just because of the way that you feel like a fly on the wall in some of those shots and then to kind of put you in the shoes of the, one of those characters and then to jump right back to the kind of fly on the wall, it's a very, in, it's more involving than I thought it would be. Yeah, uh, there's more, that disorientation happens throughout the film, right? You have you have these, uh, sometimes there's a couple of shots where Nell, you know, you don't realize you're looking into a mirror, for example, until the last, the last second. Uh, and then of course, uh, halfway through and at the end of the film you have these these shots around the stuff that spiral staircase um, which are very you know kind of dizzying you're going around and around and you can't tell kind of where you're at with those shots um, incidentally I know they rigged those shots on that railing they they, they made up a new um, kind of dolly that go along that railing and they recorded those backwards going down the railing and then ran the film backwards to look like she was ascending the staircase. But even little things like that also make it disjointed. The other thing I want to say about the lighting too is the choice to do it in black and white means it's very hard to tell whether what time of day it is, right? That's always an effect of, of shooting in black and white, I, I think, in, in movies is it, it can be very daytime and twilight and nighttime all kind of look the same. And again, I think that was 
part of his, his intention is you don't you don't really know what time of day it is anytime, anytime these things are happening. That's also to your point where you said that you couldn't remember in the film how many cor- the course of how many days have transpired. In the novel, I believe you said it was seven. Um, but in the film, I don't even remember. And I think that that's a big part of it, right? It could just be one evening. Maybe it only took one, 12 hours for Nell to succumb to all of her uh, nerves and whatnot. Or maybe it's been two or three days. And I think that that sense of unknowing kind of proceeds throughout the entire film and all of the characters. It's this idea that from the outside, it's a majestic estate, and yet it's just a house. But as soon as you move into the house, it feels supernatural before anything even happens, before there's banging on the walls or anything to that extent that happens that's very supernatural, before the doors start, start quote-unquote, breathing, which we'll uh, get into in a little bit. But it is a film that you become lost in, in a way, and I think that that speaks, again, to this idea that it is very much a supernatural film and yet at the same time it's kind of understanding who Nell is and it's her becoming lost in a lot of baggage that she has going into the film almost where she's the last person that you would ever want to recruit to spend the night in a haunted uh, a potentially haunted mansion just because of all of the trauma and baggage that she's been basically turning into like a pressure cooker ready to blow at any moment. In terms of the novel, because you're more familiar with the novel than I am, um, how do you feel about the job they did adapting it? For the most part, you can never be 100% pleased with a film adaptation of a novel. Obviously, you're condensing something that's several hundred pages into more or less a two-hour film. But in terms of The Haunting and The Haunting of Hill House, how do you think they did? It was interesting in, in preparing for this, you know, watching the 1963 film and the 99 film and reading the book all you know, basically in the, in the space of a week. It was interesting to compare them all. And the I, I think the 63, again, we're talking about Robert Wise. He's one of the, the best filmmakers in the history of film, right? Uh, he's won numerous Academy Awards, just a, a really brilliant producer and director. Um, so this this material was in the best possible hands. Um, I'm also, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was just a few, he bought the rights very soon after the book was published. The book was, I mean, I'm not a Shirley Jackson expert, but I, I think the book was relatively popular. It was one of her more popular things. And so uh, everyone knew what this book was. When the movie came out, everybody would know what this was um, and have high expectations going into it. And I think more or less they're satisfied. I mean, I think the book, I think that the, the 63 film is about as faithful to the book as it could be. There are some definitely some, some changes in embellishments. Most of it is, um, I think, relatively minor. A lot of the back story of the house, um, some of it they cut out of the film and other parts they embellish. There's little things like in the book, he actually had three different wives and there were two daughters, not one daughter that lived in the house and then ended up fighting about it. But I think it's interesting because what it seemed to me that the 1963 film, um, even though it was so quickly after the book, even it embellished some points and tried to in, in um, infuse some extra drama and some extra scares that weren't in the book. And then of course the 99 film just took that completely off the rails. <laughs> but but it started, it did start with the 63 film. So for example, uh, the, the character of the doctor's wife, that's totally different in the book. So in the book, uh, the doctor's wife is, she is also a paranormal expert. She has a very different kind of way of approaching it. But she shows up halfway through, and it's not a surprise. It's planned that she's coming. In the book, it is planned. She comes up, and she is just a detestable person, just 
a horrible woman and <laughs> incredibly conceited and just bosses everybody around and just looks down her nose at everybody. Her driver stays with her and she's he's kind of like her little assistant and she takes a Ouija board all over the house and is trying to prove her husband wrong in all these rooms. Um, and on the one hand, I kind of understand why Robert Wise took that out and it didn't really go, because it doesn't really lead to any scares or anything, that whole character. It almost, honestly, in the book, it's almost more like comic relief, which there wasn't very much of in the film. In the book, the, the book is in parts quite funny. I mean, some of the dialogue is quite funny, but, uh, and it also changes the ending. And, and I noticed that because that's the one part of the film that really doesn't work for me, is in the film, you know, the doctor's wife gets, you know, she disappears and then she shows up in a crawl space at the, I mean, I'm spo obviously spoilers, everyone. <laughs> she shows up <laughs> at the very end at a crawl space for no reason. It's never explained or discussed. And then, uh, and then later she's outside again for no reason and it's never explained or discussed. None of that was in the book. Um, yeah. It's almost like uh, that, that whole scene, the very dramatic scene with Nell climbing up the staircase and then almost falling off and then eventually being caught and brought back down all of that happens in the book but that's all of the fear and the frightening that's happening is completely inside her head there's nobody popping out of a ceiling to scare her it's just the scares of the house are all inside of her head um and that's in the book it's enough but i understand why in a film it's kind of hard to dramatically show you know, somebody losing their mind inside their head that's the best part of the book that's the hardest part to show in the film is the dialogue mm -hmm. of you know the internal monologue of Nell throughout the story obviously in the book there's a lot more of that um and she's the kind of person who just is constantly daydreaming it's, it's just so obvious that she she because I mean in the I don't know if they, I don't remember if they say it in the film but in the book they it, they give her age I think it's from the age of like 21 to 32 or something. She's, she's been her entire adult life caring for her mother. Um, and so this whole story is really, it's almost like a coming of age story for her in her mid thirties, right? A crash course. Yeah, it's a crash course. And that's why every conversation with every person is a new thing for her, right? She doesn't know how to interact with, um, you know, an attractive man of her same age. She doesn't know how to interact with an attractive woman of her same age. She doesn't know how to, you know, interact with an elderly doctor. Or, you know, it's not, like all of this is new to her, and so all of these great conversations—it's—it's it's her trying to parrot what she thinks is the right thing to do socially, and sometimes she gets it right, and sometimes she gets it wrong, and and she goes through these mood swings of, of laughing for no reason, and then um, outbursts for no reason. And I mean, she's clearly an an unhealthy person. Yeah. Um, but yet a lot of that, that tension between her in her mind trying to figure out what is the right thing that I'm supposed to do in the situation um, and her actual dialogue, it's easier to do that in, in the book than it is in the film. I think they did a, a great job and I think the strength of the film is really carried on the talent of the actors. You know, there's some dynamite actors they have in that, in that film, really, really uh, world-class actors, stage actors from that, from that era. era. Because I think the 1963 film, in many ways, it feels like a play. It feels like you're watching a play, or more accurately, honestly, especially with the music choices, it feels like you're just watching a 90-minute Twilight Zone episode. And it was, that was the era of Twilight Zone, and it feels very much like that. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a fantastic way to put it. And like you said, the strength of the film is really those core four characters. And 
that was again something that the 99 film I think um, was a miss on just in terms of like adding more characters who didn't end up serving a purpose but we'll get into that in a little bit um, but I think yeah it's really I'm curious too in that in the from what I've read again I haven't read the book but in my research I read that Nelson Giddings adaptation included more of an emphasis on it being Nell kind of losing her mind it's more of that it's more the focus on her mind breaking down essentially and it's it's less about kind of the overt supernatural and it's more kind of just the perception of a mental breakdown of course there's still ghosts uh, and whatnot later but again it's very much focusing on that on that angle the kind of like you said this film is coming out in a time where the story is really capitalizing on kind of science and all these professions that are trying to kind of get to the bottom of things and yet there are a lot of skeptics that are able to kind of talk the way talk their way out of certain things um so i'm curious does the film capitalize on that in a way that kind of accentuates shirley jackson's writing or do you find that it kind of conflicts with it no i think it complements it very well i i think that as you said i know the screenwriter and robert wise they went they actually talked to shirley jackson because again this is, this is a contemporary film it was made right after the book they went and talked to her. It's like, okay, I really, I interpreted this. That is really just all in Nell's head. And this is this is a, a portrait of a mental breakdown. And Shirley Jackson basically said, uh, no, guys, it's a ghost story. There's, it's a haunted house. <laughs> and it really, I mean, it really isn't ambiguous, um, honestly. I mean, there, there's stuff that happens. There's even more things that happen in the book. I mean, there's the writing on the wall. At first is in chalk, then it's in blood, um, and then Theodora's clothes get get ruined by blood in one part, and then strangely, you know, a few scenes later, they're not anymore. But all of these things are, are witnessed. It's not just by by now. It's it's all four of them see this. Um, there's the part which is in the film too about the the two men go chasing after a dog they thought they saw. That's in the book. Um, so no, it's 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 Shirley Jackson certainly considered this, and she specifically said she considered this is a haunted house story. It's a story about a haunted house. But what is never explained in the book and what she never felt the need to explain in the least is why it's haunted. There's not mm -hmm. even an attempt to explain it. And that's one thing, again, that the, the film tried to do, I think, is give more of an explanation. Is, you know, they made, they spent a lot of time focusing on the, the Mr. Crane story. And we do hear all that backstory in the, in the book. But it seems to me, at least my impression when I was reading it, was that it was really more, this is just backstory for just to, to give you a context, but in no way in the book do they imply that Mr. Crane is haunting the house or that he had anything really to do with the evil things happening in the house. Uh, it's, it's more the way it's written, just to be clear that this house has been evil since day one. All sorts of bad things have always happened here. They happened before he ever set foot in the house and they'll continue to happen. So I thought that the film, even just some of the parts of the book that they chose to keep in seemed, for example, the part where they, they highlight the book in the library that uh, Luke Sanderson finds to show, oh, look at these, you know, the very, very kind of this over this over the top religious dogma book that, that Mr. Crane had made for his, in the film, daughter in the book, his two daughters. Um, but just to show kind of what an over the top religious zealot he, he is. And yes, that part is in the book, 
but it's really in no way is it implied that he's like some kind of vengeful guy haunting the house or anything. No, it's just he's just <laughs> right. one of many, many stories that they go through in the book of people who have lived in this house who have had haunted experiences. And then, of course, in the 99 film, then they take that to like a thousand degrees more. Yeah. But that started with <laughs> that started in the 1963 film where I felt like they really tried to make Mr. Crane a villain. And that was not in the book. I felt like they, it seemed to me that the film was trying to find a villain and try and find an explanation, and especially with the way they did the ending. Even even a little thing, this is a little thing at the very, very end of the film, where you have the car crash, right, right at the end, and you have this dialogue with, with Nell, it's, you know, Nell in her mind is thinking about like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm staying with the house forever. And then there's this scene at the, at the very end where she 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 realizes oh wait no this isn't right somebody should stop me and if it looks like she's struggling with this steering wheel as if she's trying to to not crash but then crashes anyway and as it, it visually gives the impression that there's a ghost like you know forcing her to do the crash but that's not in the book either uh, really at the end of the book uh, at the very end it, it ends with that crash and she is completely you know mentally inside the house during that whole experience and possessed by the house. And there's a there's one sentence at this very split second before she dies, where she's like, oh wait, maybe somebody should stop me. And then she dies. But there's no there's no indication of a struggle. So I so I, I just say all this to say that it feels like he was trying to add some more supernatural elements and maybe make the house try try and put together an explanation for why the house was evil, but um, that doesn't make it better in my own mind. Right. That sounds to me, that sounds like a case of it being, hey, we have to condense this several hundred page novel into a package that is very easy for an audience to follow. But I mean, I came to this movie with fresh eyes. I'd seen the Haunting Hill House series, but I hadn't seen the Haunting or the uh, 63 or the 99 version. I haven't read the story. And something that I was really impressed with was it feels to me, it felt like a very implicitly constructed film, especially compared to the 99 version, where I had a couple of interpretations of what was happening. Either the house is straight up haunted, or this is very much Nell, her kind of like mental breakdown. But also I started to think like, is she being gaslit by all of these people? Because she is such an outsider and she, her relationship is so contentious, especially with Theo. I mean, Theo's character comes in and she's very flirty, right? It's implied that she's a lesbian. And so there's this kind of romantic dabblings and they start off very kind of buddy buddy but then once the doctor comes in and he and uh, Theo begin or not Theo rather uh, Nell begins to sort of see have those kind of romantic feelings for him then Theo sees him as an obstacle and then their relationship becomes more and more contentious and she starts saying these little jabs that definitely catch Nell off guard and it kind of exacerbates her internal struggle with the fact that like she's still dealing with the fact that she dedicated the last 11 years of her life to caring for her mother. And now she basically is doesn't have a home. She doesn't know what to do. And like you said, this is very much a crash course coming of age tale for her. And having such contentious relationships and having a constant kind of just struggle with those around you and being an outsider and coming to terms with that. And then we have the whole supernatural angle. I mean, there were so many different avenues that this film could have taken for me in terms of where it was gonna end up. And that I found to be a real strength, but like you, I did not enjoy really kind of the the uh, the ending and just being so clear cut and it being like, oh, forget all that, all of a sudden there's a ghost in the car kind of ending. 
And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leaving a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, which drives the show's success. And now, without further ado, let's get back to today's horrifying episode. Right. Theo especially, I mean, we can talk about Theo. That, that was an interesting choice. I, I'm like the way that he directed that actress to do Theo. And I know, um, I mean, not, not that you and I are probably experts on talking about, you know, lesbianism in film, but, but I know there is a lot, there, there's a lot of people who have written about that and this movie specifically. Um, it is coded that um, Theodora is a lesbian. Um, it's, it's very subtle in the book. In my opinion, there's basically just one, one kind of line of dialogue that implies that that's the case. In the film, uh, Robert Wise, I understand, had written a scene, and they might have even shot it, um, to, at the beginning of the movie where you see Theodora's girlfriend dump her, basically, or mm-hmm. there's like a message written in lipstick or something to make it very obvious that she's a lesbian. And they decided not, probably wisely decided not to include that scene in the, in the film. But um, I think there was studio pushback too. The studio said something to the effect of like, they can't, obviously that scene, it cannot be so heavily implied. But then also there was some kind of stipulation that Theo and uh, Nell can't be, can't touch each other during the course of the oh, film. Oh, really? I didn't know that. There was something to that effect, but I thought that what they ended up including, like the brief moments of them touching one another's arms or something to that extent, um, I thought that that was like effective. So the fact that they even felt they, the studio was going to say something, I mean, that's indicative of the time period. But Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think, and again, I, I, I'm doing a lot of comparing with the book, but the uh, they really played up, I think, in the film, the flirtatiousness um, between them and, 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 you know, possible chemistry or tension anyway. Between them and between Luke and even and even between Nell and the doctor, really, I, a lot of that seemed to me to be, um, you know, just to kind of juice up the film because that really wasn't in the book either. I think that the impression that I got from the book uh, in just a reading is, is Theodora was, I wouldn't, I don't really think she was ever attracted to Nell, but it was more, she was an empath. I think they didn't have that word back then, but if you were to talk about it now, that's what you would call her an empath. Right. And she was very in tune with Nell and her insecurities. And Nell would play, um, I don't even think this, I don't know if this is in the film, but there's little dialogue games that you know, you, you recognize that Nell is trying to have a conversation, but she kind of sounds like a 12 year old, even though she's 32. <laughs> yeah. And Theodora would kind of, kind of regress and talk that way too with her to kind of build mm-hmm. a friendship with her, but there's lots of scenes and all the, the painting, the toenails and all, all of that stuff happens in the book too. But it'd be, I mean, honestly, Theodora just comes off as kind of a bitch in the film. Yeah. And, and that was not true in the book. So that was a, that was a clear directing choice that Robert Wise mm-hmm. made and wanted her to be a little more aggressive, I think, and assertive. And a lot of that probably, like you said, is just for time. You don't have so many minutes in the film of this character's face and how do you want it to look? And what, what, what do you want to show the audience? Because obviously in the longer book, you know, these characters go through all sorts of wide ranges of emotions. Yeah, and I think, again, like being indicative of the period, by uh, studio standards, they have to compartmentalize women into specific roles that audience is familiar with, right? It's either 
there's a woman that's traumatized that is afraid of everything or has these outbursts or there's the woman that serves the purpose of being a bitch and like you said that's how Theo is perceived because that is how her character is but also like the doctor's wife you said that in the novel that his wife is essentially an equal in terms of their profession and then in the in this she shows up in a cab and she is trying to bring him back because oh you're dedicating your life to nonsense there's no such thing as the supernatural she's very much a skeptic like luke to the point where i was like why are you even bothering having his wife show up if exactly. she's just going to kind of be that character that's like oh well i'm just going to come and berate my husband and that's like very much a comedic thing from that era not not to say that's not a comedic kind of trope in uh film now but i mean that is very much a kind of stereotypical thing like oh I, I hate my wife. She's an egg, like that kind of shit that I felt was very out of place. And I think, again, it probably comes down to trying to dumb down this novel into a package that a lot of people for the period could just like easily kind of follow along and then get a grasp of what's happening. And then, hey, we're going to go to a clear cut ending. And I feel that for the most part, like I really enjoyed this movie, but I could feel kind of like he's almost running to the exit or to the ending of the film, whereas hey, we got to wrap this up in a way that isn't anything people will be able to kind of wrap their minds around. And I think it kind of fell into some, it definitely is like the more tropey second half of uh, the film. Yeah, I mean, l- listen, there's there's two things that are universally true about Shirley Jackson books. One is the 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 great thing about the book is the journey. It's not the, It's not the climax, it's not the last scene, it's not the end. You're reading it for the joy of the journey. It's not the final scene. And the second thing is, if anyone has ever, you know, written a one-dimensional woman character, it's not her. I mean, her women and her stories are very three and four-dimensional. Um, and both of those things are very hard to translate into a film. I mean, to have a film that is more about the journey than it is the last scene, especially a horror-slash-terror film, and to try and have well-rounded, deep, interesting, complicated women characters in a film, that was hard to do. It's hard to do now, and it was really hard to do in 1963. So I don't fault Robert Weiss at all for how he adapted the book, but it's just, I mean, it's just interesting. And if, if you like the book, I mean, if you like the movie, definitely check out the book, it's worth reading. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to go back because that's, I mean, what everything that you're saying are th- are elements that I don't think were necessarily capitalized on the best for the film, which a majority of that is because of the medium of film. Like, it, like I said, it's going to be two hours, give or take, and it's difficult to compartmentalize all that. But those are really some of the details that I really, and I mean, exploring these characters in much more depth and not seeing them reduced into kind of these archetypes that audiences can easily uh, consume, I think is, it makes me want to go back and read the novel. But um, in terms of kind of just, again, the scares in this, I was, or I don't know if I would say scares, but like the, the terror elements of this, right? What I love about, and this is kind of in prepping us to talk about uh, the 99 remake, what I really liked is that at the core of it, Nell is never lost for a majority of it. I mean, we have a couple of overt moments where it's like the doors look like they're breathing, which I think is a really cool effect from that period. And it's one that everybody is experiencing, right? Even the doctor sees it, right. Theo sees it. Uh, same with like hearing the banging all around the room, Theo's experiencing it. So it's not all just Nell. And yet mo- little moments like Nell jumping when she sees her reflection, when she thinks she's being chased by something. Really, it's just the shadows of the house at that moment. And yet it exposes just how traumatized and how kind of 
breaking down her mental state is in that she's basically jumping out of her skin like a cat if she sees her reflection suddenly. Or there's that moment where I think she bends down and the floor is so polished that she sees her reflection in it and she basically jumps at that as well. And little moments like that, I think, like you said, not so much kind of a traditional horror film, it's more of a terror film. The terror isn't necessarily explicitly like supernatural throughout the entire film. There's supernatural moments and yet some moments of it are, it's just this broken woman being succumbing essentially to a very unsettling uh, situation that she's in. Yeah, and I mean, it was a couple of my, my understanding is Julie Harris was actually depressed when she filmed. Yeah. She was going through a very hard time and was very depressed. Did not get along really with the cast very much. So that, I mean, it wasn't, some of it wasn't acting. I mean, she was in a difficult part of point of, in her life and it really, really came through in the performance, I think. Yeah, and I mean, in the end, I felt that this film was very much a tragedy in the kind of traditional sense. I mean, it's about a woman who feels lost. She finds a place that she thinks could be her home, essentially. And then that sense of kind of loss that she's grappling with is, is exploited by this kind of supernatural entity that I mean ultimately leads to her de uh, demise. Right, I mean the house the house is naming her and calling her because she's the perfect victim, right? If you're if you're a haunted house and you want to absorb like there's that there's that wonderful line in the book which is also in the movie where she right at the beginning I think when she comes to the house where she talks about um I forget it, it, it's she says something like she feels like she's a small creature like swallowed up mm -hmm. in in this monster or something and that, that whole feeling where it doesn't matter what room she's in or or what she's going through or asleep or awake from the moment she steps into that door she's already swallowed like she's already in the beast right and she'll mm -hmm. never come out again it's such a great great imagery and and that that performance shows it you know absolutely yeah and that comes again comes full circle to the fact that i love just how isolated the film feels, again, like you said, we don't even know how many days they're in the house for. It could just be they're there for 16 hours or something and all these events are happening. And that small core cast, and there's such a focus on their relationship and the dynamic of that relationship, all unfolding within this very spooky, brooding, atmospheric house. But it really is, even if we don't see anything supernatural, it very just is the sense of claustrophobia. Again, like you were talking about earlier in that, the cinematography lends itself to making the house feel like a hostile place without anything super overtly creepy happening or any of those kind of traditional jump out moments. Just her running through the hall, a dark hallway, the way that that's presented is incredibly unsettling in a way that, I mean, how many horror movies from that kind of era have you watched where it's like, okay, they're running down a hallway, but it, it just, you, you're not lost in that world or that environment in the way that I feel like this film really succeeded on whether it's able to kind of capture the beauty of the Shirley Jackson novel and all that it, that novel achieved. I think that with this film, he's able to capture something that is very special for that period in this kind of subgenre. It's so true. And, and it has, I, I don't mean to in any way, like I know I'm, I'm saying some things I like about the book better, but don't get me wrong. This film is fantastic. I mean, it's a phenomenal right. film, especially, especially for the era. I mean, I think Psycho was 59 or like around the same, something like that, right? 1960. Mm -hmm. So it's around the same era. But I mean, other than Psycho, I can't think of anything within a decade of this film that comes close to achieving that kind of feeling and atmosphere and fear from basically cinematography and lighting alone. 
I mean, almost nothing happens scary in the film, but it's so unsettling um, from just the way he does the camera shots from the fact that they, he, he put, um, he put ceilings in every room, right? So you have these long on the sets. It's, the whole interior is all set. It was not, I mean, they did exteriors at Eddington, what is now Eddington Hotel in, in London, but, or in England. But the interiors were all sets. And so, you know, normally on a film set, you have no ceiling because you use, you have lighting and stuff up there, right? But he put ceilings on all these rooms. And so you have this amazing effect where every room, like when it, in the, whether it's in these hallways or in these giant rooms, somehow it feels claustrophobic even in a big room and even in a long hall it feels so claustrophobic and you can tell it's you can simultaneously feel crushed by this house and also that there's no end to it at the same time it's a really remarkable thing that he achieved yeah it feels never-ending and it feels like it's otherworldly even in scenes where like they're sitting around having dinner together they have that magnificent dining room that's filled with lavish foods and all these things and he's and the doctor is saying like oh don't don't, he says something along the lines of like, don't make fun of my uh, my passion for spirits or something like that. And yet the room doesn't feel like natural. It almost feels otherworldly, like I said. And I think that that's such a testament to never allowing the film, not to like overgeneralize 60s films, but I feel like for a lot of kind of genre pictures from the 60s, I don't necessarily, type of environment they're trying to convey doesn't always hold up necessarily, right? It doesn't always kind of hit the same way that it would later in life or a few decades later for me because I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, I see what they were going for here, but I'm just gonna kind of try to respect what they were going for, even if it's not necessarily connecting with me. And in this, it's incredibly unsettling no matter what's happening because the way that the world is presented, it, I never was kind of waiting for, I'm not waiting for, there's no like predictability in terms of like the story beats or the dialogue arcs that it's taking or things like that. Very much so for me, I felt like the progression of the film was very unknowing. Right. It never was kind of like falling along these kind of just Hollywood uh, blueprints that they have for narratives and things like that. It feels very unpredictable. And I think that a big part of that was thanks into like the cinematography, like we were saying. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's good to compare it to other films from that era. I mean, like, you know, this this film should not be confused with the very similar titled House on a Haunted Hill, right? The, that that film from 1959, which which coincidentally was also remade in 1999, just by mm-hmm. sheer coincidence. <laughs> but you know, you compare these two similar titled movies, both scary movies, within a few years of each other. There's just no comparison. I mean, there's no comparison in the type of film that says that is a. I love it. I love House on a Haunted Hill, but that that is a cheese fest. It is just full of every cliche and predictable trope, and and it's a fun trip, but it's not in any way unsettling or scary. That's the perfect example to what I was uh, what I was failing to articulate well was that, like when you watch that movie, yeah, you love it. You love Vincent Price. You love the cheesiness of it, but it feels very much like it's running alongside a blueprint archetype of a B movie, right? It's something that it you're along for a fun ride, kind of like a mindless ride. And then in with in compared to this film, like I would say that this film is able to achieve what that film, whether that film set out to do that or not, not to kind of like put a black and white comparison to the two, but it very much is kind of an elevated form of what they were trying to do. And I know elevated gets thrown around a lot with horror, but I mean, it's able to convey a genuine 
emotion with something, whereas the other one, you're kind of just along to be entertained. Whereas in this film, it's dealing with multiple layers, whether it be psychological scares, uh, supernatural scares, you're dealing with these characters that don't necessarily, that they kind of break certain archetypes. And it's, it's a very, it's a much more complex film in a way that, I mean, again, like it, when you compare it to other films from that era, it's, it's a remarkable film on its own, but I mean, it's a masterpiece compared to some other films of that era that whether they wanted to or not, they were being compared to it because of the types of stories they were telling. Yeah, it really is an interesting time in film, the early 60s. I mean, this this year, 63, this is the same year of Kiss of the Vampire. I mean, you were, you were still in that, you were still in that era of just cheesy, gothic, recycling old, you know, 1920s you know, horror monsters in film still 40 years later. But you were also, I've forgotten, um, there's a film Dementia 13 was also in this same year. I don't know if you've seen that. That's a great film. That's Francis Coppola, 1963, uh, which I'd forgotten it's the same year. So you're right on the cusp of this, you know, some some really phenomenal filmmakers who even 10 years earlier would have looked down their noses at horror, much the same way that great directors sometimes do today still. But this was the time of, you know, there's some really great directors in the 60s who are like, hey, let's see what we can do with this genre. And guess what? A really talented director can do something with any genre. Absolutely. Uh, before we jump into the 99 ap- adaptation, were there any last points you wanted to make on uh, the 63? Uh, no, I think we can jump right into an example of a less talented director <laughs> tackling something that never should have been tackled. So, <laughs> In 1999, there was an adaptation of The Haunting again um, that was directed by John de Bont, who was the director of Speed 1 and 2 uh, and written by David Self, who this was actually his first screenplay, I believe, and he would go on to pen Road to Perdition and 2010's The Wolfman. Um, And for anybody that wants to kind of see what a train wreck adaptation looks like, you can check out The Haunting 99 on HBO Max, Prime Video, and Tubi TV. Let's set the stage here because I feel like this remake was doomed from the start. It really was. I mean, Wes Craven was supposed to do this film and he ended up backing out to do Scream instead, right? And we know we know what happened with Scream, right? <laughs> so that was a genre-changing, like, fantastic film, and so he, he made a good choice. Spielberg was one of the producers to remake this, this, uh, this film, and his last Haunted House movie was Poltergeist. Uh, you know, 20 years or whatever, 18, 16 years or whatever earlier. So, you know, that this was, uh, th- th- there was all the tools there. And then there was Stephen King Stephen was also King. involved. Yeah. Stephen King had done a, uh, he had written basically a remake of this, of the 1963 Haunting film. Um, but I think it was, I think Stephen King and Steven Spielberg were both involved and they had creative differences and they couldn't figure out where to go with it. I think, I, I assume, you know, that Stephen King was trying to make it more scary and Steven Spielberg was trying to make it more blockbuster. They couldn't figure it out. Stephen King eventually gave up and left. And interestingly, had that script, that rewritten script from this, eventually became his novel Rose Red, which did itself eventually turn into a, a, a movie or a TV series or whatever. But Rose Red started as Stephen King's attempt to rewrite the screenplay of this film. And so it, it eventually turned into his own kind of haunted house um, novel and then and then series. So, I mean, you have lots of talented people who are interested in this story, interested in this um, this material and what it would be like. You know, it's been 40 years 
to, to see what you could do um, to remake it. And, but beyond that, I, how it got to the director of Speed and Twister, you know, <laughs> I just don't have yeah. idea. Well, I mean, even the creative differences didn't stop there because the, the original cinematographer apparently quit like a weekend because yep. of creative differences and they had to do a bunch of reshoots, which I mean, that the first week or two of shooting is probably the most important and just kind of like getting the production started. And now they have to go back and kind of ensure that they're matching the tone that they actually want for this film. And like you said, it's passed through so many different hands that it's almost like, okay, so like you go through all of this prep time and then it's like, okay, so what direction are we taking this in? And it's so, and it's so obvious in the film that they didn't, that, that's, that's really when you get down to it, that's the problem with the film is they didn't know what direction to go in. And I, it's it's none of the actor's fault. I mean, it's this, the script is not good and the direction is not good. But all I think all of that is really a symptom of the underlying problem, which is with this film, they didn't know if were they trying to be, you know, a, a PG-13 Disney like spook story, you know, like the Haunted Mansion, you know, on film, or were they trying to do something really you know, kind of violent and, and um, gory? Were they trying to do something kind of beautiful and fantastical and more kind of ethereal than scary? Uh, and they ended up trying to do, or were they trying to do something funny? Because there's lots of like, especially Luke, or Luke Wilson has these horrible, horrible like one-liners that only Luke Wilson could deliver. Owen Wilson spends Owen the whole Wilson movie just going, he just, he just spends the whole movie going, wow. But uh, <laughs> that's like his his main contribution to dialogue is every time he sees something in the house or somebody says something, he just goes, wow. It's like, that's all he's there for basically. But something that I learned that I thought was interesting that might be at the core of this identity crisis that the film's struggling from is that this film is actually not a remake. It's a new adaptation. So I guess the, produ the production company was unable to get the rights to that. Right. And so they were not allowed to reenact any of the pivotal scenes from the haunting in 1963, which that might have something significant to do with it, especially for fans of the novel and the haunting film like yourself, where, I mean, for personally, I don't always want a shot for shot remake. Obviously, I want a new interpretation, a new lens with which a horror director is going to explore something. And yet there still needs to be some framework or some hint of the original in some way. Cause then otherwise it's like, why are you even doing this? If there's no semblance in this film, I feel like it's struggling so much. Like we've been saying to kind of find the Avenue that it wants, that it gives us something that it's almost like, why is this have anything to do with Hill house at all? Right. No, it, eventually you end up giving the audience something that nobody asked for. I mean, nobody wanted this. The, the great, I mean, what was so captivating about the original novel in the 1963 film is it's a character study, right? With really, really, really great acting. And, um, and most of it centered around kind of one person uh, and, and, and tour de force. And then you take that material and you said, okay, well, now we're gonna redo it. And it seems like whether it's intentional on the director's part or not in the 99 film, it's almost like the actors are secondary, right? The main cast is CGI. And this is the beginning of, I mean, again, you, you have to put it in context of 1999, right? Everybody was really excited about what you could do with CGI. Um, and they went way overboard. And it really became, you know, 
the original House was one of the main characters in the original film, but it but it wasn't a character that you saw. You didn't see literal hands coming out of doors to grab people. <laughs> and you didn't see literal paintings eating people and, you know, chimneys. Giant hippogriff statues coming to life. and None of that. None of, you didn't see any of that. And even what was, you know, you'd, you'd have these, you have that, that statuary, right? In that one room, the, kind of the weird statue. And in the book, they describe it as being unsettled because, again, as they talk about in the first film and in the book, you know, this crazy guy who made the house made none of the corners were square and none of the floors were level and even the statue the top of the book had to be the base of it had to be like specially made so that it wouldn't be unlevel with the rest of the floor or whatever that all goes into this unsettling feeling right and then you go into the film in 1963 and you have oh yeah there's this creepy statue and there's kind of there's a few uncomfortably long shots of the statue but the statue the statue doesn't move it doesn't jump out and eat people. It it doesn't try to drown you. No. And somehow they interpreted that in the in the ninety nine remake. Like, okay, well, let's see what can you know. We have to make this creepier. And so to make it creepier, let's make everything like move when you're not looking at it, and all the sheets will turn into faces, and and all this. And then it, it just it's so much that it becomes you lose all the fear when every single scene, when every character looks away from a household object, it becomes anthropomorphized into some kind of ghost shape. And that that's just not an effective use of screen time because you desensitize your audience. I mean, you're, you're but that film in 99, you're so, even the few jump scares there are, I feel like by the time you're 45 minutes into the film, you're, you're already not scared anymore. Yeah, you're definitely desensitized and it's so overstimulating. And I would compare it, comparing it to the original, I would say the original is very much an implicit story in a lot of ways. And this is very kind of explicit in that everything is moving, everything's changing, everything is a death trap. And taking it back for a minute to what you said about it being character driven, or rather the 99 film is not very much character driven as the original film or obviously the novel. For me, losing the internal monologue for Nell completely makes her character just like anybody else. Yep. Like yep. the way that she's portrayed in 99, okay. It begins similarly enough, her mother died She's basically, I think she explicitly says that being with her mother for 11 years was like purgatory, right? She even says that out loud at one point. Um, and that's all that we know about her character. We don't know any of the kind of inner workings of her character. We don't know the extent to what that 11 years of purgatory had on her. We don't see any of the kind of framework breaking down. And not having any of that, it makes her character no different than Theo, uh, Owen Wilson's character or Liam Neeson's character in that yeah, she has, in, I think in this film, the ruse of the experiment is that it's for people that are suffering from insomnia, right. basically, which is different than the other film. And there's kind of like this sinister intentions behind the, the study when it's really a study in fear, which... Which, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, the first of yeah, all, it doesn't make any first sense. of all, why do you need that? And second of all, if it's a study in fear, isn't it, is this like House on Haunted Hill where he's trying to scare them? It seems to imply that, but then... He just, they get to the house and they're like, okay, go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Go to bed. <laughs> right. And also, I mean, just in terms of like things that don't make any sense, why did they have those two additional characters show up? Like in the original film, we had mentioned that it's a very close knit group. There's four characters total. In this, I think the film starts with six or seven and then it gets whittled down to those four. But it's like, why even bother introducing those extra two or three characters? 
one of them gets maimed, I think, by the uh, harp string right. that hits her in the face. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. that moment is so such a fantastic example of like a lack of subtlety that is kind of just a in your face moment that it's like, oh shit, look, she got whipped in the face and now she's bleeding kind but, of thing. Yeah, but it's they, like, they could have done that same exact thing could have happened to any of the four main characters. Those, those two assistants to the doctor serve no purpose whatsoever in the film. They show up, one of them gets hit by a piano wire, they leave 20 minutes into the film. There's no point to these characters. I assumed when they first came on and I was watching, I assumed like, oh crap, okay, I guess I guess they're gonna like up the body count and start killing, even though no one dies in the original story or film, except for now at the very end, no one dies. I guess they're gonna just kill off some characters. So maybe this, maybe these two characters are there just for body count, but then they don't do that either. They just, they just leave. That would have at least justified their inclusion. Whereas when I saw that scene originally, I thought that since they have this whole new narrative where it's like, oh, it's all about fear, which doesn't make any sense with the context of a remake of uh, The Haunting. But I thought that it was going to be that Liam Neeson is like orchestrating these things to happen that would invoke fear. Somehow they're staging these things or whatever. But then, like you said, there's no that nothing stems from that other than you get this kind of cheap moment. And it's almost like it would make more, it would justify those two characters' existence if they just were to kill them off. I wouldn't agree with that direction, right. but at least it would serve a purpose. Whereas, I mean, this film doesn't get going for almost 30 minutes. And it's like, okay, it's not that complicated of a story. No, it's And I think that this film, the 99 film, I believe is longer than the original too, which should never be the case. You should never take an original work and make it longer. Generally, I mean, I don't know when that's ever worked and just in terms of whether it's pacing or you're adding some kind of new narrative arc to it. It's like it, this has to serve a purpose and it has to include some kind of rewarding angle to justify the inclusion of it. But this does neither of those. Yeah, it really. And it, again, it goes back to the identity crisis that this this 99 film has. It's and, and the, the whole ending and how terribly botched the ending is of this film. It's because this it's like the ending to another film. It's, it's you start with this, okay, we're gonna have a bunch of people do a, you know, study this house or, or have study insomnia under the ruse, under this ruse of, of getting better for insomnia or something. And then, but apparently no one, no one including the doctor did any research under the house. <laughs> this- It was just a random Airbnb. Yeah, and this random, you know, this, this Mr. Crane who built the house apparently is, it's never explained. He's maybe a child molester or a serial murderer or something, um, or both. But it's not really explained. His motive for doing that is never explained. Then Nell has all these random supernatural powers that are never explained. The only reason I know this is because I had to look it up because there's a couple of moments of dialogue that they're kind of just throwaway lines, and yet there's apparently this whole elaborate explanation. So. What I've found in my research was, is that apparently Crane wanted to fill his house with children, but all his wife's children died in childbirth, so he couldn't have them. Then I guess he's like, he has a cotton mill. And so he was kidnapping orphans, torturing and killing them and burn their bodies in the fireplace, which they discover those are the bones and then their ghosts are trapped in the house. But it's, but it's never explained like, why would he kill them? Does he want them for child labor? Does he want them to like live in his house? Does he want to molest them, which is implied? Like what, why does he want all these kids? And then if he wants them so badly, 
then why does he kill them? It's not, none of it is explained. Yeah, that's kind of just like this loose, bare bones inclusion of something. But again, like you said, does it's inconsequential, all of this stuff. It doesn't have any real bearing on anything and it's just bizarre and random. And it speaks to that identity crisis, kind of like this is to a much, this is a much more elevated example from, but the original in 63, you said they try to frame Crane as being the villain, right? Compared to the novel where he isn't really. Of course, this is a much more exemplified version of that to the point that it's it's ridiculous. You can't not laugh at the end of this movie whether it's the bad CGI or not. Like you can take or leave that. The story is ridiculous. It kind of, it includes these spiritual otherworldly kind of like stakes that it's like all of a sudden we're battling for souls. Like I thought this was a fear experiment and all right. of a sudden we're fighting these forces of evil that are trying to corrupt children and all of a sudden Nell is a savior of children ghosts or something. Yeah, through, just... through the superhero power of just like, I guess saying I love you or something. She's, I don't know, she <laughs> just says something about love and now she saves all the souls. Of these None of it makes sense. <laughs> but the other part, the, the other problem with it is it completely undercuts her character. Like the whole point of this character and you have built up this because the first half of the film roughly really kind of tracks with the original film and the original book. And you're, you're, you as an audience member, like you're watching this film, you're trying to empathize with, I mean, clearly she's the main character, right? So you're trying to go along with the main character. You know, she's had a hard life. She's arguing with her sister's family, whatever. You're going through all these struggles with her. And in the original story, in the original film, they go through like, okay, clearly she's unstable and this house is taking advantage of her to the, somehow halfway through at some point this 99 film all of that goes away and instead now she's like her mental instability is now a weapon or is now like <laughs> something that's you know she's predestined to be this way so that she can understand these kids somehow or something it's i i don't know you just you just you completely halfway through the movie kind of lose the character that you're you've been following along with and you don't even know yet what what, how am I supposed to feel about her anymore? Am I supposed to feel sad for her that she has these mental problems? Am I supposed to empathize with her, sympathize? I guess not because now it's a good thing she has them and I, you just don't know where to go with it. Feels very indicative of, uh, of rewrites in general where it's just like, oh, we're, we're gonna bring some a new pair of eyes and we have to kind of finagle this ending into something that we think audiences want, but in the end, audiences would never want this because it makes no sense and it's just, it doesn't flow in a way that makes any sense. But something that bugged me from the outset of the film before we even get into any of the supernatural stuff is just the house itself. Part of what I love about the original film is that for all of these things that could, that are or may not be happening, it's an, essentially it's a lavish house and yet it's still a house. It feels like a real place. The house in this movie feels like a cross between like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and a Tim Burton like amusement yeah. park. Like everything is so fantastical over the top. There's these massive sphinxes everywhere. You've got the Charles Dickens-esque painting of Crane on the wall, kind of like brooding. Like nobody would ever want a, a painting oh like that commissioned to themselves. The world's ugliest self-portrait on the wall. And, yeah. And then, and right, and then you have this like weird hallway with a like a river and fake books for a floor. Like yeah. no person would ever have this in their house. Or that like rotating room that's like a yeah, merry-go-round like almost, weird, but it's like just like- Carnival glass house, uh, yeah. Also, they explained those two rooms because it was supposed to be a house that was like, I, I think it was, it was supposed to be ideal for children. Children would want to play here, but it's like, 
those are two rooms where children would hurt themselves so easily. So that on its own doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, And again, you don't need it. it to me, it's just such a clear sign of, you know, if, if I see a film like that, like, oh, well, I don't know how real children would actually want to be in a house. So therefore, I'm going to turn it into Neverland. You know, I'm going to turn it into this ridiculous theme park. That makes it feel, even if you're not, even if it's not true, it makes it feel like you're trying to overcompensate for a film that doesn't make any sense. And to the point where, again, it speaks to this idea that this film is not constructed around its characters. It's constructed around the house. And the house is never the star of, or the focal point, rather. The house is the setting, and yeah, it has these events that occur with these haunting events and supernatural events. And yet, if you lose the essence of the character, like, what, what do you give a shit about what's happening? You don't, because there's, I mean, we don't have to rag on the CGI too much, because again, like, this was the big beginning of the CGI boom, and for the most part, it doesn't do much for me. Um, but I think, again, you lose the essence, especially of Nell, like not having, I didn't realize how vital the inner monologue of Nell was in the original film until I got 10 minutes into this film, because you have that same interaction with Nell and her sister and her sister's husband. She's getting kicked out essentially. And they basically demean her by saying like, oh, we need a maid. You can come be right. our maid basically. But then afterwards, we don't learn anything else about Nell. We don't get any of that kind of rich world building or character building of hers that we got in the first film, which is obviously indicative of what is ex uh, extrapolated upon in the novel. So I just ended up not caring about any of the characters in this. And then that is the main problem for me in that it just becomes the CGI show in a way that it's just not indicative of what the film that it's being, or the text that's being adapted from. And I mean, having the director of Speed 1 and Speed 2. Yeah. and. You know, when when you when you clearly don't have a direction like this for your film, like you said, it's it, it becomes obvious, and you end up pointing your audience into into instead of pointing them at your characters, you point them at set pieces or at or at things foreshadowing events, right? Like you give all these these scenes talking in front of the fireplace and about the fireplace, and obviously you're only doing that because you want to show off. That the fireplace is going to eat Owen Wilson later in the film, or whatever, and, and that is not an effective scare, and is not an effective use of your time and your attention of your audience. When you compare it to a film where, instead, you spend those moments and minutes, you know, building your characters and making your audience care more about Owen Wilson, so that when he's killed, if you want, if that's what you want to do with your film then it's a shock and they care about it. Like no one cares about the fireplace. People care about people. They don't care about set pieces. Right, that's why Nell's death in the original film is so affecting, because you care about her. It's so, tra and that's why I described it as being a tragedy, very much so in that there's this woman that is being, her grief is being exploited. And that, in, and coming to care for that person and seeing that exploited and essentially knowing deep down, like there's only one way that could really end is with her dying essentially, that's heartbreaking, that's tragic. And yet in this, it's like, I didn't know who her character was in this film. I didn't care about any of this. They introduced this very kind of just like artificial superpowers or whatever. And it's just like, okay, yeah, it's her character's dead now. Owen Wilson's dead. We can just move on. Cause they're just, like you said, it's all based around set pieces rather than character. And in losing the heart of it, you're not gonna have that emotional ending or that emotional uh, gripping moment that you want if all of the time has been dedicated to the fireplace. <laughs> And there, the, even even still, there's, there's ways you could have done it better. I mean, like, if you wanted her, because there's so much of this theme of her 
and even the, not just the dialogue, but the way they shoot her with CGI, you know, dead ghosts, baby, you know, children's ghosts all over the place. And they make it, they make her feel very much like a mother figure, right? To all these ghosts, but she's not a mother. She's never been a mother. She's never, she doesn't even like her, her only nephew or niece <laughs> or whoever it is. This yeah. is not a woman who likes kids or has any relationship to any kids in her life ever. Like, why would you, why would you, why would you choose to make that how you want to like, you know, have the climax of this character's life be all around saving children? When you've done nothing whatsoever to build up the story of this woman as someone who even cares about kids at all. Right, and I mean, in the previous film, it, it was all about it being a crash course in her life because she's been in purg purgatory for 11 years taking care of her mother. So I don't think you come out of that and all of a sudden you yourself are like, oh, I, I want to be a mother figure. I don't think that like nothing about that is natural or makes sense for that character. And again, it makes for the ending being ridiculous and so ill-fitting that it just completely takes me out of it, which I, I think, sure I think the bottom line is, you know, if like you said, if you're going to do a remake, uh, I, first of all, I don't think 1963 Haunting needs a remake, but if you're going to do a remake, then do exactly what they did with the Netflix series. Do, you know, you keep the, you keep the setting, you keep, you know, the basic character names and some of the character traits, and you do something completely original with it. And you, you do it really well and you do it character driven, especially with source material like this, it has to be about the characters. And if you, if you, we can talk about a different time, what a great remake looks like. <laughs> the film is not it. But I think that that's what I'm really looking forward to in our eventual chat about the series in that we finally get to see an example of a work of literature that needs that breathing room. It's not a novel that you can condense into a two hour film or even a two hour and 30 minute film. It's something that needs to breathe and it needs to kind of grow organically. And much like Nell in the original Haunting film, we need to be consumed by Hill House. You can't be consumed by Hill House in 90 minutes or 120 minutes. It, and again, it's because you have to get to know these characters and you need to experience them in this new way. I mean, granted, the series has the benefit Mike Flanagan, who's like the big guy in horror right now because of his penchant for being able to tell really character driven stories. But I mean, as always, it's a pleasure having you on to chat horror and I can't wait to do it again soon. Uh, always happy to and always a uh, great fun. Love it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.